Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. And today it's a great pleasure to be joined by pioneering musician, inventor, and all round thinker, Money Mark. Over the course of Mark's extensive career, as well as releasing multiple albums and solo releases, he's been a longtime collaborator with the Beastie Boys and worked with the likes of Femakuti, the Yeyeyes, Yoko Ono, and Della Soul, to name just a few. His music and sound design has provided the soundtrack for everything from cult documentaries through to major films and TV shows. And currently he's on a piano roll. So, Mark, it's so lovely to have you join us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm on a piano roll. That's cool. So you and I originally met, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago now, which is crazy because it still feels like, I don't know, 2019 um, at a festival called Muzak, um, and then more recently um, in Frogtown at your studio, where also uh, painter Mike Todd has a place. And that was pretty much just before lockdown. I think that was like February. Um, so how have you been finding, you know, this past crazy year? I, I, actually, I think uh, Laraji was, you were interviewing Laraji or not? Well, so L- Laraji and I had a, uh, a track we were doing. Um, so we were kind of just catching up and hanging out. Um, and obviously he was staying at Mike's and, you know. Okay, I totally remember that now. I'm not good at the origins of all, all of my relationships. I kind of also feel as I get older, like everything that happens has happened kind of for a reason and it's kind of interlocked and it's all kind of smushed together but so because i now i feel like i've already known you forever so um if it's been two years uh, that went by pretty fast and slow too at the same time yeah and you know in that vein um i know we talked about it a little bit before but um you know just how how are you doing right now how are you feeling about things and i know that's kind of such a loaded question but um yeah where are you right now in terms of everything well currently i'm sitting in front of the microphone and i'm actually drinking um a half a glass of wine right now and i'm feeling pretty good i'm feeling that uh what we're going to talk about is going to help me and help us um and i have a lot of information and um, every now and then when I'm talking about it, it helps me to like interject it back into me, my brain. Uh, and overall, I'm, I'm a bit uh, shook about recent events. Um, recent meaning maybe, you know, recent could be yesterday or six months or a year or three years or a whole decade. But it's been very compacted, the things that are, hap- that are happening in the world and being uh living in the united states it's been kind of difficult to like um figure out how to maneuver day by day because today's date is uh we're in january of 2021 and um i honestly it's uh, it's a bit confusing navigating is uh is a tricky thing I I totally hear you. Um, and that's why it's, yeah, definitely nice to be having this chat. Um, Orange Juice for the Ears, so the title of this show is taken from a line by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. Um, and that line is, 
Music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. So I just want to know, what, what does that quote mean to you? There are some euphemisms, uh, euphemisms that I've lived by. And that's a, that's a good one. I really enjoyed hearing that because I had not heard that before. Music has brought me to places. Um, I'm speaking for myself here. I, I think I would be um, definitely not the person that I am. And that also means that I met music and music met me at some point in my life, very young. Or uh, maybe I was just born into it, and probably because my parents, by <laughs> later on, I figure by design, I'm you know, just a perfect product of their idea. Um, but it's given me lots of gifts. I'm so grateful for that. And it's given me an opportunity to see and hear and experience things around the whole globe and to make associations with people and other kinds of inhabitants. And it's just been a fantastic gift. And as far as referring to the to the quote directly, I have, you know, definitely felt that um, the music has saved my life. And what else is a tonic in your life? A, a, a tonic in my life is just hearing all the beautiful things in nature, creatures of the, of the other inhabitants I speak about all the time. They're making beautiful music <laughs> just by being. And that's also another thing. It's kind of Zen-like to just be. And the sounds that, that are around you and the sounds that you make are just part of this cool, like, part of life. Not even, like, mysterious. It's just kind of natural. Well, with that um, as a sort of beautiful um, oral landscape, what was the first song that imprinted on you? Yes, that would be um, You Are the Sunshine of my life and I was nine years old and it really hit me because I was in Hawaii with, on a family vacation. I was nine years old and, and the hotel that we were staying in, it was right in Waikiki and it was a block to the beach and I had walked to the, to the beach with my parents and I was swimming in the water and I, was, I felt like it was the first time I, like, I was like kind of alone. I mean, you're nine years old, you're kind of with your parents all the time. But then I swam, and I was a pretty good swimmer, and I swam out and swam out. And then I looked back, and like, they're kind of far away. And I felt really awesome. It felt awesome, like, oh, I'm free, I'm free. But I had just heard that song um, on the radio in the hotel room, and I was singing it and singing it. And it was like, oh, man, this is like, this is my song. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's take a listen to You Are the Sunshine of My Life by Stevie Wonder. You are the sunshine of my life. Yeah. That's why I'll always stay around. Mm -mm, yeah, yeah. You are the apple of my eye. And that was You Are the Sunshine of My Life by Stevie Wonder. And that was the song that Money Mark chose as the first track that imprinted on him. Um, when And you heard it when you were about nine or that memory of swimming out and feeling free was around the age of nine, right? Yes, I was, it was the age of nine. And then later on when I took um, 
music lessons, I chose piano and my teacher, um, well, I have to say I was studying piano and I wasn't doing so well with reading notes and doing my Bach exercises. And I could play the pieces if I could just hear it and play it, but I couldn't read the music. And the purpose of the whole class was to be able to <laughs> learn how to read music. So the teacher advised my parents. I felt like a failure too. It was like my my parents were um, advised to put me into ear training. So that was the best thing that ever happened to me because the teacher on the first day was um, Ms. Peterson was, um, what song do you want to learn? I was like, oh, wow, yay. I want to learn this Stevie Wonder song. And so that was like one of the first songs I ever learned. And then later on, you know, in school, I would see my friends who, are, who were in my music class, and I go, I'm playing Stevie Wonder songs. <laughs> Damn, you took the right path. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes when you fail, it's, when you, sometimes when you fail, it's an opportunity. <laughs> Absolutely. How old were you? Do you remember when, like, around the time you were being transitioned out of the formal music class into the ear training one that was probably like 12 years old yeah and just to sort of backtrack a bit so you know you're talking about um hawaii when you were nine um but you were born in detroit to a japanese hawaiian father um a chicano mother and you moved to la when you were six um what was that transition like for you that was pretty much a, a shock to the whole family uh, I, well, technically, my father's Japanese-American. He was in Hawaii, and Hawaii became a state in 1960, 59. And my mother is uh, from San Antonio, Texas. They wanted to be married, and it was illegal. Uh, interracial marriages were illegal in the South, in Texas. So they moved to Detroit. My father found a job. And then my mother found a job at a jazz publishing company. And um, I felt a little odd because I didn't look like anybody there in, in school. Um, when we moved to Los Angeles, it was like pretty shocking. Like, what is this place? This is so cool. And then, you know, I saw the ocean too. It's like, oh my God, this is like awesome. And my father said, you know, I grew up in the ocean. There's the ocean. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and we found uh, lots of uh, community in Los Angeles. It turned out to be like the best thing uh, ever to happen. Just in terms of, you know, the, the neighborhood and the people around you? and um, Just there was a place for us to be. You know, there were mm. Spanish speaking, not just, you know, Mexican American, Chicanas, Tejanas. There was other you know, there was Hondurans and El Salvadorans and um, Spanish-speaking communities. And then uh, there was lots of Asian communities, too, primarily Japanese at that time and Chinese. But there was at, at least there was like some like something recognizable. There was, a, you know, noodle shop or, you know, you can hear the language and some of the music, the indigenous music and some of the local music. That was like, oh, that's so cool. Um, we're kind of in a place where we can start to grow the family, you know, mm. and and you know make our lives stable and steady and healthy. And was there always a lot of music in the house? 
My mother's um, family are all musicians. They were singers and musicians. And my mother, her name is Lydia, named after Lydia Mendoza. And if anyone doesn't know Lydia Mendoza, go look up her name. Um, she is a high priestess of the music in the that's southwestern area. She was very political. She was very, I mean, she sang political songs, love songs. She was a song songstress. And her and her sisters had an amazing group. Uh, Lydian Mendoza is just, um, you know, a force. Mm. And so the my grandfather played violin and my mother sang and the brothers played guitar and saxophone. Wonderful. And your your father was an electronic engineer. Yes, he was an my father was an electronic engineer. He also was really into his local music and that's why I say, you know, technically he's not Hawaiian, but there was Hawaiian music there. So he collected um he had a collection of Martin ukuleles and other companies of ukuleles and had a lot of albums. He collected a lot of records. He had a lot of vinyl vinyl records, and we listened to them all. And um, he was an electronic engineer as well, so when I started getting into music from my mother's world and then and my father's world, I was able to like figure out lots of things about music, you know, technical things about the instruments, how they're made, what makes their sound, um, how um, electricity works. Like, it was really cool. I didn't know at the time, though. I, I, my, I asked my father to help me buy a Fender Rhodes, and then he surprised me and just bought it for me. But then it, he was like, uh, well, we're going to take it completely apart <laughs> so that I can, I can figure out how it works. So, And that was a bit annoying because it was <laughs> It was a couple of weeks of my Fender Rhodes completely apart on this big table in the garage. And he was figuring out how it worked. And it's like, you know what I got to see? I got to see the authorship of this machine. Um, Because Harold Rhodes had not... um, Well, I had bought a Fender Rhodes, but I didn't buy a Rhodes. Harold Rhodes, who invented the Rhodes, uh, had invented the, the pickups and the tines that make the sound in the Rhodes. But the amplifiers came later from the Fender company. But I got to see the Fender Rhodes kind of just all spread out. And then putting it back together, I couldn't wait till it got put back together so I could like start jamming out with my friends or, you know, recording music too. So simultaneously... Um, um, you know, right at the same time that the, the the keyboard was kind of dismantled on the table, um, I also acquired a 3340 TX tape machine, a four track, and a couple SM57 microphones, just by looking at pictures, you know, by like, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, I'd like to have those things. So playing, learning how to play and recording uh, happened at the exact same time. That's amazing. And I mean, you you know, you said it, um, but that illustrates it so clearly just how you were so much a kind of, you know, product of your mom's or, you know, the music from your mom and the the looking on the inside of things from your dad and um, what kind of perspective that must have given you just for everything, you know, you went on to do. It's fascinating. Did you help your dad out at that time in putting it back together or were you just waiting for him to? Yeah, yes, I had to. I was, you know, that was part of the whole deal is that, yeah, I'm going to 
you know, you're going to get this keyboard, but you're going to also help me take it apart and put it back together. And my father passed in 2010, and I, you know, a year later, I went into his office and I found um, all his tools and and there was a soldering iron that he used, a weller that he used forever, and I plugged it in and it didn't work. It was broken. And uh, so I cut off the cord and I made a necklace out of his soldering iron. So if you ever see me out and I'm wearing a soldering iron as a necklace, then that's <laughs> came from my father's uh, lab at the house. That's beautiful. Um, so on, on that note, what was the first album that shaped who you are? and had a a big impact? The first album that really hit me was um, this album by John Lennon, Walls and Bridges. And I just felt like I was really finally connecting with these songs, this group of songs. And I loved the Beatles. The Beatles were nice. They were fun songs to play, fun songs to sing. But I also felt there was something deeper. And um, when the Beatles kind of split apart and they were making solo albums, I just really connected with John Lennon. And part of it was also like what was happening in the media and information I was getting from in the media. But uh, the song um, Number Nine Dream, like I remember being at a party and there was a keg of beer at this party. And the keg of beer had run out and someone was going to, you know, we had to go get another, some more beer to continue the party. And I got on the roof of the garage that was next to the swimming pool. And it was quite far. But I knew that I could jump from the house to the swimming pool. And I guess the owner of the house the person who lived there was like, no one's ever been able to do that. And I knew that I could do it. I go, well, I'll bet somebody, you know, I'll, if I, you know, obviously if I don't make it, I will be hurt. But then I was like, I'll bet somebody I can do it for a keg of beer. And so I was kind of nervous. I was standing up there and I knew I could make it. But then, uh, you know, and there was like this music going on. And then Number Nine Dream came on. It was already my favorite song. I said, oh, no, I got to do it now. So I leapt from the garage into the pool and I made it up obviously and then um, I was under the water and it was quiet you know you're under the water and it's quiet and then as soon as I popped my head out of the water there was cheers and like yeah and somebody already had to go they were already in their car ready to drive to get a keg of beer <laughs> but I mean I have that memory in my in my um, pages but the first time I ever heard the song, I was just, uh, the first time it hit me, I, was, I had a VW and I was just driving on the freeway and it came on the radio. And I, I was crying actually, like driving on the freeway. Like, and I was like, it was like validating my existence on the planet. For some reason, I don't know why I connected so much with that song. And then uh, actually in the, in 2020, uh, I think it was October, the um, Sean Lennon, Sean Ono Lennon and Yoko Ono uh, Lennon had put out a special edition of John's music. And I heard Sean on the radio talking about this song, Number Nine Dream, which, and he was saying, like, it's the top song in, in his whole catalog. So I was like, wow, I just, 
I picked like the richest song, the song that he thought was like the top song ever. And even to this day, when I hear it, I get chills and I feel like my whole life is kind of in that song. Perfect. Let's take a listen to Number Nine Dream by John Lennon from the album Walls and Bridges. That was Number Nine Dream by John Lennon from the record Walls and Bridges. Um, And that was the album that Money Mark chose that had a real impact on him and and really shaped um, who he was, who he is. And you gave a couple of stories, you know, just of where that song was a soundtrack. Um, Also interesting because there's a water theme, you know, the ocean and then the swimming pool. Um, what, What do you think if you were to distill it into kind of an essence, you know, what is the the thing that it really makes you feel? It makes me feel that things are worth taking a risk for. You know, I almost, I'm getting teary-eyed talking about it because things in this world are really, like, we need to take risks for the things that we love, the things that are precious to us, and the things that we believe in. And we're kind of defined by that and when we don't do that our lives are just flat and you know I don't know for me personally like every day is something there's something where I extend a little bit you know a little bit more every day and that to me was like how it felt at the time and it kind of helped to propel everything I did after that I get emotional when I think about it and talk about it well, it's beautiful, and it's a beautiful song, and I totally hear what you're saying. Um, so when you were younger, you, you studied theatre, um, and but then you sort of ultimately moved away from that. What what did it teach you, that experience of um, of both, you know, being a, an actor or whatever, but then also deciding that, it, you know, you, you had other things to do? Well, I definitely had a lot of things to do. I had a lot of things to prove. Um, you know, I was re- I had related to the Nina Simone story because she just had things to fucking prove. I got this to prove that I, being of this, you know, stat, uh, being of this class and being of this race and being in this kind of uh, economic situation, I have something to prove that I can be part of all of this um, culture and the movement of humanity. Like, I'm just some random person, but I just felt like that was something that I had to do. So those were my motivations. I I knew at the time, you know, I wasn't going to be an actor because there was no jobs for me except to be a, a gang member or a thief or something, you know. But I did uh, have music. It was kind of in my back pocket the whole time. So that became the thing that I was going to do. You know, I just went full force at it. I was up against lots of odds. And I was thinking there's a radio and music's coming through it. It's like, I can be on that radio. I can, some music that I make can come out of that radio. I was like, okay, 
I don't know if that was like a conscious goal, but it was a goal. The goal was to like be a maker of things and and not to stop doing that. When did you first have that thought of, you know, I can make something and it can come out the radio? Oh, that was like I was probably 16 years old. The records that I was talking about already had come out a long time ago before that. But then after that, there was like more and more and more like there's been so much that was like I'd hear a song. It's like, oh, man, that's lighting another fire under my ass. So I have a bunch of fires under my ass right now. I'm still going. So obviously, you know, we're going to get more into the music and, you know, the the bigger picture stuff, which, you know, because really it's you're you're an artist and that extends into multiple fields and areas um but we haven't really chatted at all about your life also as a carpenter and and how you got into that right um my father was a builder of things the reason he chose to study electronics is because he wanted to make stuff and he he knew how to use tools and he knew the value of tools and that was like the, one of the most important things and because of that when i studied theater i was like really sharp in the in the building of sets in the sound design and the um you know, when you're making a theater production, you're creating a world. So there's mm. the lights and the sound. And I was good at those things. And I was good at building sets. I had a really good eye for it. Um, my, I mean, I, I have a good eye for th- those kinds of things. And I really enjoyed, you know, getting something and make, make making something for nothing. It's just kind of my ethos. Um shaping something out of wood was like really awesome sets are like part you know part of telling the story in theater is the sets are super important because they evoke probably you know the you know the backdrop the 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 feeling of the narrative in the backdrop is these awesome constructions and this architecture and i was like oh that also was played into my idea of collaborating with other artists musically because I always felt like being in the background was my gig. That was my gig. And I made a whole career out of this idea, you know, make something from nothing. But then also when someone sees a chair or a table or a, a house or something, they really don't know the author isn't connected to it in any way. You know, the, the, uh, the image and the functionality of something, the beauty of it is outside of the author, unless it's promoted that way. But I, I always felt comfortable with like making something and just leaving it there and like having um, the um, the emotive part of it, you know, the recipient and the person using it or looking at it. And I felt that was like, the va- the value was there and that's all that really mattered to me and obviously there's the cinderella story of carpentry opening up a gateway l- literally into music um tell me a bit more about that um sort of you know how you went from remodeling the beasties outwater studio to a core role you know, in check your head and beyond um and how that all unfolded 
I was a set carpenter on the Hollywood Center Studios lot, and that was uh, on Las Palmas in Santa Monica Boulevard in Las Palmas, and it was Zotrope, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's studio, and he made this. He made a, did a bunch of work there, and he made this amazing movie called One from the Heart there, and I was so happy to get a job as a set carpenter on that lot. So I worked in this at this company that was making sets, but they happened to be on the lot. So all of the productions, there was lots of car commercials and there were other kinds of uh, TV shows being shot there. They would use this set company. So every day I'd check in in the morning um, and I'd, they'd see a schedule and says, you do this, you do this, you build this, you build this. And there were the plans, the blueprints from the the ADs, the artistic directors of those sh shows or those programs, they needed things and they draw up these blueprints. And Pee -wee's, Pee Wee's Playhouse happened to be on that lot too. So I made stuff for Pee Wee's Playhouse uh, a lot of times because I was talented at just, uh, I don't know, I just had a knack for uh, the vibe of what needed, what they actually were needing, like make a. Uh, a baby stroller. We need one like right now and needs to look, kind of look like this. So that was really fun. Um, but as I would drive to work on Santa Monica Boulevard between the 101 freeway and the studio, there was right in kind of smack dab in the middle there, there was a little, little recording studio uh, owned by the Delicious Vinyl label and Tone Loke and Mellow Man Ace and Young MC were recording there. <laughs> and the, the, the producers of a lot of that stuff were the Dust Brothers, and the engineer was Mario Caldato. And I had known Mario from years prior. Uh, we had played music together uh, in years prior. And then one day he was like, hey, I work kind of close to where you work. So I would stop there on my way home or, you know, if I had time and if I wasn't so tired, I would stop there and that would be a little oasis for me, like my little um, decompression after work. And um, the Dust Brothers ended up becoming the producers of the Beast, uh, Beastie Boy Records, and Mario was the engineer of the Beastie Boy Records. And later on, um, Mario became the producer, and we produced together some Beastie Boy songs. But I met them originally because Ad, Adam um, had rented this house in the Hollywood Hills. You know, they were all from New York City, and they just didn't really know. They didn't even have driver's licenses to drive their cars. They had to get driver's licenses. Um, this house that they rented, there was some party and somebody ran into the gate and broke the gate. So they needed someone to fix it and they asked, you know, uh, uh, they asked the Dust Brothers and Mario, like, who can, uh, do you know anybody who can fix this gate? And I got elected to fix the gate and that's, basically how I met them. And I mean, you know, musician, carpenter, inventor, you know, all the things that you are, pretty great member to have on a team, but um, you've kind of described yourself um, as a hired gun. 
uh, and you know, despite being with them for over what fifteen for a fifteen year run or more, uh, was it always important for you to keep your independence? Well, part of the idea of being independent was that I could move around and do whatever I wanted to do, whatever was my choice. So being locked into anything is, even to this day, is like I feel like um, being able to adapt is, I think it's kind of part of also being youthful. So maybe I retain some of that youthfulness if I keep all of the roads open. But at the time, you know, I felt like, um, I didn't think of it as a, I wasn't romanticizing it as like, wow, now I'm going to be a rock star. I, I, when, when I said earlier that I wanted to have a song on the radio, I didn't actually mean that it would be the, like, the person singing the song. I, I just wanted to be part of it. And so I was part of it. And by design, uh, I guess to answer the question is like, by design, I always kind of stayed in the background. And I always, when a ph- photographer was coming in the dressing room or something, I would just kind of go the other way. And I would avoid doing interviews, and I just just didn't want to be. I wanted to be part of it in a major way, but not like in kind of those on those uh, peripheral things that you have to do when you're trying to promote a song or a record or something. I just didn't want to do any of those things. I felt really comfortable in the background. But also, you know, I read that you're always conscious you wanted to own your own catalog. Um, so that's you know that's sort of part of that. It's something a lot of people don't necessarily think about, you know, that idea of keeping your IP and keep and being able to do what feels right for you. And, you know, that was obviously something that was very important for you, um, which also, you know, connects with that wanting to be, in the, you know, independent or just like not tied down. Yeah, not tied down. And also owning my copyrights was probably like the most important thing. When I realized I was, you know, actually starting to own some property, some intellectual property, I had to actually go get a quick kind of schooling on it. Like, and I had some really good advisors, not my lawyers or managers. It was just people on the side like, hey, you know, I have a story for you. Like, you know, there's these blues artists that didn't, um, you know, get paid. They made all these cool records and they just didn't get paid. When you read Nina Simone's story, you know, she didn't get paid and she got pirated so often. And that was disheartening. And my manager at the time was had worked with Bonnie Raitt and Bonnie Raitt helped these blues artists get paid. There was like some technical se- sentence construction, you know, it said... Um, it said vinyl records or something like that. It said phonograph records. You know, the money from these phonograph records, you will get part of that. And then later when it turned into different formats, like cassettes and eight tracks and CDs eventually, you know, they were using that word. um, They weren't using the spirit of the idea. They were using that actual word. Well, those aren't phonograph records. Those are, that's tape. That's different than a phonograph record. And, you know, they, didn't, they weren't getting paid, and Bonnie Raitt really set the record straight for them and helped them get paid. And then I was thinking, wow, if I make records, so that's what happens, you know? They own your copyrights, 
and like, do the artists ever get to own their copyrights? I was asking all these questions that you're not supposed to ask. And yeah, well, yeah. And then um, I found a lawyer that would help me actually construct, you know, there weren't, those weren't common contracts. You had to actually make it up. You had to invent it. So I was part of that idea of like a person who wanted to own their music. So and, and so that happened and it did make me happy. I was independent. Tell me about the music retreat that was a bit of a turning point for you. Why was that so impactful? So as a set carpenter, kind of have a, there's a buddy system when you're working on uh, the sets. They'd say, you and you go to stage four and take this, uh, take all this plywood over there or these pine strips and make this set here here's the plans and go and build it you know and there was a buddy system and there was a friend that I made there and we worked good together and he told me that he was a big King Crimson fan and that Robert Fripp had had was giving guitar lessons it's like wow that's kind of cool so by that time I was already playing guitar and keyboards and just kind of playing drums and bass, just trying to figure out the whole thing. And I had my tape recorder, but then I had to collect a mic preamp, and then I had to collect a compressor and a limiter. And so I started gathering all this in- info and gear. So I was playing guitar, and Tom was like, you know, Robert Fripp started this thing called Crafty Guitarists. And I just read, if you write a letter, you know, he might accept you into the school. It's like, okay, so I wrote a letter, And I got accepted into this um, two-week retreat that was happening in Los Angeles area and happened to be in in Malibu, or it happened to be at Leo Carrillo Beach, like up the hill from there. It was a big grassy area with like um, a dorm area. It must have been like a school or something at one time. I had to buy this special Takamine guitar that I have. Uh, Actually, I'll send you a photo of it. And um, I still have it. And the first day was short, like, go to your dorms. Here's the, you know, it's kind of an orientation. Get to know the space and everything. Meet in the, tomorrow morning, meet at 6 a.m. in this space. So, okay, 6 a.m. comes, and I go to the space. And I was there early. I was anxious. I went there early. And Robert Fripp is sitting in this room on a chair, just silent. He's just sitting there with his eyes closed and his hands on his lap. And there were other chairs there, and there was no instructions. There were no, um, there was no way to know what you were supposed to do. So, good, good thing I was the first one there because I already had been doing some meditation because my father was doing to TM and doing TM in the house, and so I kind of knew. Okay, this is like he's meditating. It wasn't like that foreign to me. So I sat on a chair and I was just kind of sitting there with my eyes closed with my hands on my lap and I could hear other people coming in the room and that they saw two people in there like what is this this is weird and you know I'm not going to do this you know but I realized that there were other musicians then like because you didn't know their daily life you would just read about them in Rolling Stone or other music mags uh, you know all of the celebrity and highlights and shit so it's like okay this guy is like cool it's like he's doing some like cool shit so then after an hour of the sitting in the chair he got up and said okay we're all going to move to the commissary and in the commissary he explained to us that 
here's the kitchen area, and here's the dining room, <laughs> and then, like, and here's the area where things get clean, and then there's trash sanitation over here. So what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to cook our own food, and then we're going to eat our food, and then we're going to clean everything, and then we're going to continue on with our day. And like half of the class fell out there. And, and I continued on for the whole two weeks. And it was really extraordinary. The, you would um, get like 30 minutes a day with him alone in a room. So um, that really totally changed my life. The things he were teaching, I mean, I could get into that. But basically, um, there was there's some monographs out there that he publishes. And uh, if you read those, you'll see what it's all about. There's piano craft, guitar craft, and kitchen craft, I guess, you know. <laughs> so that was awesome and like I carried that for the rest of my life. So your your first record Mark's keyboard repair was released in 1995. Um tell me about the concept for that because it's really interesting um something like take back the music. And in 1994 I started recording a uh, a record that actually had started before that. Uh, there were all four-track cassette recordings. And now people would say those are the lo-fi recordings. Uh, you know, the, it's become a style now, I guess, uh, or a whole genre, lo-fi. But, um, you know, I wasn't thinking like that. I was just, like, trying to make stuff. And I was challenging myself to make songs on a cassette recorder, which only had four tracks. And that's all that I knew, you know, because I had this 3340 TAC deck that like something like Lee Perry would use. I, I, later on, I looked at photos and I was like, oh shit, that was the tape deck that I had, you know. I must have been onto something. Um, so I had this Fostex X15 and I had other various like four tracks, cassette four tracks. Uh, the X-15 had a pitch control. That was awesome. But anyway, uh, I thought in my mind, if I couldn't get a song in four tracks, like if that song wasn't going to be like, like already, like have the syntax and the, and the major elemental um, elements to make it a, a song, a real song, then it, w it was kind of not valuable. And so at the time it was, um, you know, a bit dogmatic, but it was, it was my personal challenge. And I started making these recordings, recording, I did a bunch of them. I did, um, I did maybe a hundred of these recordings. Um, 30 of them became a record called Mark's Keyboard Repair. And it came out on the London label Mowax in 1995. And uh, it came out on the American label, the Beastie Boys label, at the same time. And there was a lot of chatter, like, you know, it was kind of billed as something defiant. At the time, there was like Steven Spielberg and, you know, there was 64-track, uh, multi-track recordings. And I was doing this kind of number two pencil sketching on a notepad on a napkin, maybe, you know and putting it out there in the world like it's a finished thing it's like kind of it's kind of freaked people out at the time and then over time like it became a thing and i'm super proud of it and i still own it <laughs> and i give it away for free on my website um because i just want people to hear it and 
feel to know that um, those were like seeds of uh, my whole career. Which song, because um, I, I read somewhere that a song ended up being used in some, you know, major Apple commercial. Was it one of the tracks off that record or? Actually, the the Apple commercial, Steve Jobs had become a fan and I had I hadn't known that until I got a call from him and he had heard a song that came from my second album, Push the Button, and it was a, a title track called Push the Button that he wanted to use for... Um, to help him sell some computers. <laughs> well, actually, to help him, you know, he had gotten, he wasn't part of Apple for a while uh, before that. He was, he started with Apple and then uh, he left. But then this is his re-entry into Apple back. This is the new, this is the new Steve Jobs. And he came up with this idea of having this cool desktop computer and it was the iMac so he used that song, Push the Button for the iMac commercial, and he paid me a shit ton of money. Jesus. I was like, what is going on here? And you, you and I know, being in this kind of industry, sometimes you're in the background, and you, like, you get to, like, make dough. <laughs> Maybe the artist doesn't even make the dough. Sometimes, you know, like there's a, like a Grammy. I don't know. I don't put so much uh, uh, weight into the idea of a Grammy, but, you know, it is like it is something. And you got some peers voting on it. And I don't know how, how it all goes. Elections in general <laughs> are kind of strange. But if you, I guess the album of the year, like the artist doesn't even win that. The engineer could be winning the Grammy and you may not even win that Grammy. But so anyway. Well, yeah. So, so the fact that you saw early on that it was important to, you know, have your catalog and protect your IP and all of that stuff, you know, um, well done because Steve Jobs ended up, <laughs> ended up like needing your music and having to pay for it. So, you know, it's it's also having that insight that I think a lot of artists don't because, you know, it's not particularly, I don't know, it's kind of not sexy to like know about the other side of it. And it's just easier to have someone do that for you. But the number of times, you know, you get screwed over. So I think, you know, it's really cool that you were um, very conscious about that. Um, so obviously being the kind of creative force you are, you know, you can realize a lot of these projects kind of just on your own. Um, but do you prefer working solo or or collaborating, or is it just a different thing? Yeah, working at, at, in a collaboration is like kind of how I built my whole life. And if kind of go back to the idea of like how I was brought up, my parents were collaborated on this, uh, on the idea of like how our child is going to be raised and what direction that you know what possible what possibilities exist there but i totally now feel and only now really bd like only now that i feel like i can do solo work and feel that i don't need the collaboration like i'm i'm i i i took all of that um experience and learned from everybody i just learned from everyone i learned 
everything from everyone. And now I know everything that everybody else knows. Perfect. Wow, I should call you up more often for life life <laughs> questions. <laughs> um, so on that note, um, what is the music that you would send into space? Oh, wow. I imagined that um, for, well, there were a couple things about this idea of sending something into space. Like, how do you actually send it to space? BD, how do you actually send it to space? Well, I've done it. <laughs> so, yeah, but how did you do it? Well, look, it, I had the help of a very, very qualified human being, um, Dr. Robert Wilson, who won the Nobel Prize for picking up cosmic microwave radiation um, using the horn antenna. So he and I basically used that horn antenna to send, you know, my last record into space. I could talk for hours just on this one thing. So, but in lieu of that, I would say, so it's, it's not sent up in a physical means like the, the Voyager records that were sent up, but, um, I was just kind of abstract. I know, and I know the question is a little bit abstract too, but you actually have done it, but I thought of some other ways to do it too. But anyway, I thought that, if we were going to send something into space, uh, that it was going to be human voices. And, you know, because we thought of the idea to send um, recording into space or some music into space. An animal didn't think of it, and a plant didn't think of it, and some rocks didn't think of it, a human thought of it. So uh, what distinguishes us from humans, uh, from those things, other things, is our use of technology and our use of energy right and um and our supposed uh, uh ability to empathize <laughs> uh, which is in question constantly but so it's the human voice and pauline oliveros is this pioneer at meditative music and other music you know, synth music but she pioneered this idea of this acute listening and how hearing and listening and absorbing and um, empathizing with sound is like super healthy for you how it can like enhance your your being and your brain for sure and your nervous system and how you know how it can line you up and ground you so it was really kind of a cool important stuff to for me to like discover and i really only i knew her name but i did not know um that there was this um in new york city there was a met at the met cloisters there was an event in 2017 where this piece called tuning meditations was um uh, performed so it's basically uh, a bunch of people in a room um I'm not sure how many people it looked to be um, maybe about 100 people in this room. And there was a few instructions, and everyone would start to vocalize. And it's just so gorgeous and beautiful uh, how, um, with the instructions, how people are starting with, ever, with whatever note that they want to start with, and then how you have to use empathy to listen to the people around you and try to join in on their note so it's kind of always ever changing and it's um kind of flowing and waving it's really interesting and i thought that was a piece that i would send into space perfect so on that 
very beautiful note. We're going to take a listen to Tuning Meditation, uh, the Met Cloisters version by Pauline Oliveras. Inhale deeply, exhale on the note of your choice. Listen to the sounds around you and match your next note to one of them. On your next breath, make a note no one else is making. Repeat. Call it listening out loud. And let's inhale. And that was Pauline Oliveira's tuning meditation, the Met Cloisters version. And that was the music that Money Mark would send into space um, as a real, well, just tuning to one another. And what I love about that is, you know, you, you said you kind of talked about it in terms of the, you know, this idea of listening and listening as an active experience. Um, and that's a really great example of, you know, you start by seeing your note, but then you listen to what everyone else is doing and you you kind of harmonize. And, you know, I think listening is such an underrated skill. Um, and it's sort of the, the, the place where so much magic potentially lies because, you know, it's by actively listening, you can um, pick up on things that I think a lot of people might miss, um, both in music, but in conversations and collaborations and in life in general. So um, how important would you say, you know, meditation and tuning into your surroundings are for you? Every day um, there is an opportunity to meditate and it hardly matters where you are on the planet. Or, mm, you know, I, I used to think it hardly mattered what situation you're in, but it's very difficult to do sometimes when you're in certain situations. Um, but... I think it's even possible in the most harshest situations and uh, environments that you can take even one minute to be introspective. And that's only part of meditation, being introspective. But um, for my daily routine, being meditative and doing meditation for so long... Um, I hardly really have to do it consciously anymore. And in between uh, the movements of my day, I can just fit it in. Um, I think for me, it's just something that has kept me healthy. It's aligned me and kept me grounded and kept my brain talking to my body and my body talking to my brain. And it's helped me with uh, making decisions. Um, it's just 
it's probably the most important thing that I do every day. And I read, you know, I read somewhere that you said the job that you do has to include in it some social good. I just want to say I couldn't agree with that statement more. I absolutely believe that. So what what are you working on in that area now? Today, um, as we speak, I'm sitting next to my machine that I built that will play a piano roll. And I don't know how much we want to talk about what a piano roll is. Basically, if you are a musician, you will know what a MIDI file is. If you're not a musician, uh, a piano roll is a machine that will play... It's an actual piano, and there's a piece of paper on a roll that's rolled up. And on this roll, if you unroll it, there's these holes uh, on the piece of paper. And what that is doing is allowing air to flow through it. And when when air flows through a hole, it's coordinated to a hammer on the on the on the strings of the piano, and it hits that note. So music is. Um, is sound that's moving in time like it starts here and it ends here in time it moves through time it's not like a photograph where it's just you look at it it's just kind of in front of you Uh, and some people might say a photograph is timeless but music has a beginning and an end um, normally and that's a whole other debate but for a piano roll it does have to have a beginning and an end because it's a piece of paper and it only fits there's only so much paper that can be rolled up in front of it so as the music is playing uh, what that means is the roll is, is is scrolling through this tracker bar and this music starts to play and the player pian- and the piano starts to play the song and it's like a ghost uh, you see the piano uh, keys moving it's like the phantom Phantom of the Opera or something. Um, So the song is playing. So I made a machine that would play that song, not on a piano, just uh, on this standalone little box that I made. And that information would turn into digital information instantly, and that would play through my synthesizer or a sound module. And that's what I'm working on right now. And it has to do with... um, a code, making a code as the performer had played the piano to punch the holes and decoding that code to replay it back later in some other even geographic location. So I don't know if that's a way to explain it, but it's very abstract if you don't ha- if you don't really see it. But that's what I'm doing right now. And for people listening, in doing that, you're also reviving a lot of the great classical musicians. No, of our time. Well, we're we're we are listening to someone like Claude Debussy, who actually performed their own pieces on these piano rolls. The classical music that's there are obviously you know renditions or um, interpretations, I should say, of older pieces uh, from you know centuries ago. Uh, interpreted by modern um, pianists and interpreters. Uh, But there are some modern, uh, there's uh, supposedly, and I haven't found it yet, I found, I located Claude Debussy uh, piano rolls, but I have not found the Eric Satie uh, piano rolls that supposedly exist somewhere. Uh, Satie and Debussy were good friends. And then there are some jazz and rock 
uh, music played by the composers who wrote those pieces. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I say of our, of our time, I mean humanity. I mean, like, dating way back. Um, but it's fascinating to hear the range, you know, that the range of sort of things you're getting to hear and bring to life in different ways. Um, so on the subject of time, uh, how, have, how do you feel about, you know, one day leaving this planet? I feel like I'm here and there at the same time, like always. I mean, I feel like I'm just visiting. And I've always felt that idea. And leaving the planet, I don't think I'm actually going to leave the planet. If I had a... If I, if there if it were the moment, you know, talking abstractly is here, like if there was like some you know, given the the question like so where do you want to be in this afterlife? Like you can just go anywhere you want. Like, oh I wanna just be here, so I would just choose here. <laughs> so for better or for worse. When you make art, you kind of leave a trail. But even if you don't make art, the people who make art have been influenced by other people and it goes round and round and round and your sweet uh, auntie who made the best uh, uh, pecan pie she's going with you too you know she's like um, she wasn't like an artist she didn't have songs on the radio she didn't uh, make paintings that were in galleries but she made this awesome pecan pie and everyone is going to trail off, but no one is ever going to fully leave. Even the evil people, you know, they're still going to be around. Um, so I, I, if you're asking if I have any fear, I really have zero fear about it. But I also have, you know, I have some sadness because so far uh, I've made a lot of good friends and I have good family. And I've, you know, and all the ugly shit that I see all the time. I'm not going to say I'm going to, missing that is going to be, um, you know, comforting or anything. But um, I have, uh, in the end, in the end, I have fully accepted everything. What is the song you'd have play at your memorial? <laughs> um, I want to, everyone to hear a child sing a song and i haven't really figured out what song it is but i was looking on um searching for songs um it was david bowie's uh, uh birthday the other day and today or today is david birthday, <laughs> but but I, we're gonna be delayed aren't we <laughs> Yeah, but we should still say that we're recording this on David Bowie's birthday. So, yeah, I was looking online, and and it's funny that you're asking me today because I was looking online, and I saw that it was David Bowie's birthday. And I started thinking of um, David Byrne because I feel like we kind of connected when I played in a band with, with him, an uh, atomic bomb band, a couple of years ago, and started thinking of that whole crew, you know, Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno and... Uh, uh, it might be considered the, the five, the big five or something. But then I saw that uh, Freddie Mercury was, everyone knew each other, those people knew each other quite quite well and they were really good friends. And then from looking at Freddie Mercury, I saw Bohe uh, this child singing Bohemian Rhapsody in the backseat of a car. And I go, oh no, that's got to be the recording at my memorial. This child 
doing their very best to sing Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay, well, we're going to take a listen to Bohemian Rhapsody sung by some young kids. And that was Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, but uh, rendered here by some children. Um, is it because it's kind of funny? Or obviously, it's beautiful to hear kids sing, but with a song like that, you know, um, challenging would be an understatement. So, why why particularly that that rendition? Well, it's it, there's a lot of reasons actually. You know, it's like it's not just the song; it's the time capsule of of what is going on right now. This child was sitting in the back seat of a car. A parent was like, you know, had their smartphone, I, I think, or video camera, but I think it was just a smartphone, and they were recording their child in the back seat of the car singing Bohemian Rhapsody. So if that's played at my memorial, they would be like, oh, this is when it happened. This is the moment, you know, this is like, this is like approximately when this happened. So um, it kind of created a timestamp. But it's also, um, I have something that Lee Perry, Lee Perry, when I worked with Lee Perry on those Beastie Boy records, he came, took me aside and I was always challenging him on things. And he said, you know what? You have kitty mind, just like me. You have kitty mind. So it's because of the kitty mind there, Beatty. Hey, the wisest people I know are all kids inside. <laughs> so, yeah, I think kitty mind is very, uh, very, very important. Um, okay, so we've now got to the point of the show where we've had to imagine a world without you, which would be a incredibly sad thing to do um and we're moving to the last orange juice for the air choice um which is you know about the record that you would pass on to the next generation you have two sons is that right yes i have two sons and their ages um are 26 and 23 and they have listened to this one particular song for their whole lives but they've also listened to the artist for their whole lives. And because of listening to this artist for their whole lives, they connected uh, with um, the Beatles and, and Bob Dylan and um, so many other artists that are completely kind of in another genre and would never be played on the same radio station or, you know, or no one would think of them being in a playlist together. And that artist would be um, Nina, Nina Simone, which I mentioned earlier in, in this talk. Um, one of my favorite composers uh, was uh, this man named Galt McDermott, which I met a couple times. I never really, I really should have, you know, pursued uh, more conversation with him when I ever, when I had the chance. But Galt McDermott wrote uh, some amazing music. Um, he was the musical genius behind the Broadway musical Hair, 
which gave us so many songs. Um, and one of those songs was called I Got No, and then there was another song called I Got Life. And Nina Simone got those two songs, and Nina Simone broke all the rules. She broke every rule, and to our, to our you know, benefit. Uh, she, she didn't just break the rules, she knew how to break the rules. What she did was she got this song and this song and kind of smashed them together. Basically, the first half of the song um, that she, uh, I got no, um, kind of right smack in the middle, she created this uh, musical interface <laughs> to get into the next song. And it's just so wonderful and beautiful. It is like kind of the story of life to me. And that's the song I would give to my children that I have given to my children. Okay, so in just a minute, when we finish the show, um, we're going to take a listen to Ain't Got No, I Got Life by Nina Simone from the album Nuff Said. Um, but just before we do that, um, Mark, I just want to I just want to ask, what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? Uh, a thread that would connect all of the choices would be that we must we must take a risk to help change this place the place uh, happens to be right at the moment the place could change but right at the moment it's the planet earth it's the earth itself all of the natural systems that go on here and the inhabitants uh, specifically the human beings who need to freaking figure it out and get get together and um, create a new thing so that we can survive and, and sustain our, our life. And what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? What I would love to leave behind is... Um, a couple like real things, but then also some ideas of, uh, well, the real things would be to get uh, into the actual soil. And is human beings um, don't live so well in the ocean because we don't, we're not fishing, we don't swim, but so we live on land and on land is where all the good shit happens and all the crimes happen. We just got to cut out all the crimes to the soil and start putting the actual ground, the actual soil, holding it in our hands and making a promise to it that we're going to respect what's inside of it. And because everything grows out of the soil, and I mean everything grows out of the soil. If you have a wooden house, it came from a tree. If the food that you eat came, even if you're a carnivore, that carnivore ate vegetables, ate a tree, ate a plant. And um, then the idea of empathy that we exist uh, not solely in our own flesh and blood. We are part of everyone's flesh and blood and our minds are all connected 
and love should go in through and out through and constantly flow through everyone well that's the best note we can end on um so money mark thanks so much for joining me it's been such a pleasure um chatting with you i feel like we could do another hour and a half um but uh, we're going to play out now with the wonderful, um, impossibly original Nina Simone and Ain't Got No, I Got Life from the album Nuff Said. Can I say one last thing, Beatty? Absolutely. Well, the album is very special because it's a live album and um, it was recorded three days after Dr. King was murdered. And she wrote the song, Why the King of Love is Dead. It's on that record. Uh, It wouldn't have been the song that I would have given to my children, but it is on that album. And I listened to the whole album and her her banter. And the whole album is um, just a gem from beginning to end. Um, But thanks for having me, Beatty. Thank you so much. And thanks for that last footnote. It's perfect. I ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirt.